everyone. Welcome back to Generational Differences. This is Hillary, and I've got Hannah here with me. Hey, guys. And today we have a special episode of the podcast for you. Uh, we're going to talk about a topic that's very important to both of us and very personally relevant to us and our families, and that's anti-Asian violence uh, and, relatedly, the sexualization of Asian women. And we chose this topic because... Last year, on March 16th, 2021, a white gunman entered Asian-owned spas and massage parlors in Atlanta, Georgia, and killed eight people, six of whom were Asian women. Of those six Asian women, four were Korean and two were Chinese. Now it's, well, I guess now it's March 13th. 2022 we're recording this podcast and so in three days we'll be coming up on the one year anniversary and i i don't like using that word anniversary for for this kind of thing because it it sounds so positive there's such a positive connotation for it Mm. um so i guess we're coming up on the one year mark since the shootings yeah and so we wanted to take today's episode which will i guess come out in like a week and a half after to talk about our reactions to the murders last year, our reactions to um, the rise in anti-Asian violence that we've seen over the last couple of years of the pandemic. Hopefully we can also, oh, and also to talk about the over-sexualization and hyper-sexualization of Asian women as it has tied to the March 16th murders, but also just generally has tied to uh, racism throughout history against Asians. And then hopefully we can also have a conversation or at least a starting conversation about how we can move forward and how we can continue to have solidarity within our communities and with other communities of color so that uh, we can try to prevent the kind of racism and um, hypersexualization and stereotyping that has led to so many acts of violence. Sounds good. So to get started, I wanted to take us back um, a year and see, or just get our reactions Uh, to the shootings in Atlanta. As we've mentioned before on the podcast, Hana currently lives in Atlanta, and um, I also went to school in Atlanta and lived there for a good, you know, several years. And so the communities in Atlanta really mean a lot to us, um, and especially the Asian immigrant community. And we'll talk more about that as we get into it. But Hana, I wanted to start with you and see if you could share your reactions um, at the time, just a year ago, when you heard, when did you hear about it? How did you hear about the shootings? And yeah, how did you feel? So at the time, March 16, 2021, I was actually not physically in Atlanta. I was doing college online uh, due to COVID. And so I was actually in DC, which is where I was staying. The first instance of hearing about what had happened was via like just social media and I went to Google News and I looked and I realized that this shooting had occurred so close to where my school is and where I was supposed to live and I mean I guess where I live now it was very shocking to me it was very very heartbreaking and at the time I couldn't believe it had happened I just remember seeing all of the press and the media and all the organizations jumping into action to try and help the situation, get legal support. And that was, you know, for the few weeks, I guess, few months even, right, following the incident. And then a few months later, when I went back to school, 
I went to my nail tech who I've gone to before, before COVID and Mm -hmm. everything felt different. I remember sitting in the chair and thinking like, do I say something about what had happened in this area? Because it only had happened a few months ago and I was kind of stuck between this feeling of, okay, do I like reach out? Do I say like, are you okay? Like, how do you guys feel? Or do I just not say anything? Because it, you know, the community that in Atlanta of Asian-owned spas and massage parlors, it's relatively, I, I feel that it's relatively close. And I've talked with my mm-hmm. nail tech before about like the people they know and other salons and stuff in the area. Mm-hmm. And so it felt very personal, even just sitting in my nail tech, uh, my nail salon. Something else I noticed was that there seemed to be more awareness of the workers there. They were looking outside more. They were watching every single person that would come in through the door or even just park in front of the the salon. And there were more men working than normal. And that's how it's been ever since. Thanks for sharing that. And I think uh, the questions that went through your mind when you went to your nail tech, like, should I say something? Should I acknowledge what happened? You know, that kind of thing. I also went through that for, you know, the weeks, months after, but especially the immediate like days and weeks after every time I even emailed someone like a another Asian attorney or an Asian advocate um, in Atlanta, especially, I made sure to say something about it. And I know other people who are reaching out to me also acknowledge what was happening. And I think like that instinct is so natural because we feel so connected. I felt so connected to um, the Asian American community, especially in that area, but all over the country because there was a reaction nationally. Like, I think that's a, a natural instinct. And I also think that at least for me, it did help to have, to be given space to feel uh, the weirdness and the sadness and the, the hurt um, after something like that. And for people to acknowledge that like this, yeah, this is really sad and horrible. And like your community is definitely hurting and people have died. And so like, I just, I think talking about it and, um, or just expressing that you're like also in it with them, uh, can be really Mm -hmm. helpful. Yeah. Well, to, to go back a year for me. So at the time I was living in Atlanta and I was actually working with, um, a small community nonprofit called Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta. And in Atlanta, there is no, there are very few nonprofits that provide services to the Asian immigrant community there, um, even though it's a huge, huge community and the numbers are growing every year. Advancing Justice is one of very few that provides like legal services and also community outreach and uh, like helping people get to the polls to vote and things like that. Um, And so just being kind of like this big presence in the nonprofit world there, especially when it came to Asian uh, communities, we were pretty much like in the center of the response to the shootings um, and trying really hard to provide a lot of support to the people and the survivors and the families of the victims, um, but also managing some of that like like the media coverage that was happening, you know, we were getting a lot of questions about those things. First, I guess I heard about the shootings. I think the night that it happened, like our leadership at the organization heard about it first and they like just immediately sent out like a rapid response message to all of us. They're like, this happened. Um, We need to meet like immediately. Um, I think our leadership team like got together that night. I think it was like in the evening and they got together that night to put out 
or like to figure out kind of next steps. Mm -hmm. And then I remember getting up really early the next morning so I could be on a rapid response call with not only our organization, but so many other community organizations in the area and people not just who don't only work on um, like supporting the Asian American community. And so everyone got on this like massive Zoom call. It was honestly two things. It was really, really like numbing and difficult to try to figure out with a bunch of other people how to approach like a media statement, for example, or like just make a plan for what crisis response should look like hours after something so horrible had happened and hours after so many people had just died in our uh, in our close vicinity mm-hmm. and like having to you know turn your logical brain on and practical brain on to think about things like that but then at the same time i very quickly saw like so many people spring into action um which was really inspiring and i saw so many people just come out and like offer any and all services they had so like one of the things we wanted to make sure we did was as we were um, inevitably going to get in contact with some of the families, we wanted to be ready to provide information on free mental health services, for example, or free legal services and just like have people ready to get uh, to like consult with them and get them whatever they needed, um, which would obviously vary family by family. We had like therapists just raising their hand and saying like, Hey, here's the languages I speak here, are the Asian languages I speak. Here's um, my phone number. And I can give these pro bono services to these families. No problem. Mm-hmm. Um, there were other people offering their legal consultation services. There were people offering just even insight on how to create like a healing space for everyone in this community. Uh, there were people, Oh, people like who could help coordinate like media response and stuff like that like communications people Um, and just everyone offering like their different services their different support was was at once overwhelming and also beautiful yeah I was actually connected to one of the families who who lost their family member in the shootings and I was connected to them through a friend um, and I worked with them over the last year especially in the few months after the shootings to make sure that they had access to all the resources that they needed. Um, like, for example, we got also a lot of donations to the organization and to a fund that was created for the victims of the shootings. Um, and so I helped them, like, navigate the process of making sure that they got the funds that they needed. Um, oh, in, in the immediate aftermath, like, we made sure that they got funds to plan the funeral, to uh, just make, you know, whatever arrangements they needed to make. Um, and it was it was weird, right? It's weird because you're trying to plan all of these like practical things for people and like offer things to people. And in the moment, they are just grieving. Yeah. And it was really hard to be like an advocate who wanted to be there for them while they're just like so sad because their grandmother died. Yeah. And on that note, like one of the most jarring things for me was learning that a lot of the uh, victims were older women um, and they were not only mothers, but they were grandmothers and they were leaving behind huge families in the U.S. And that was, I mean, it's obviously sad and terrible, like no matter who dies and who, no matter who is hurt um, because of these, these senseless acts of violence, 
But for some, I think just for personal reasons, because of my close relationship with like our grandma uh, and our grandpa, it like hurts extra when someone that like I see their face and I see like our parents or our grandparents. Yeah. One thing I wanted to add was I actually just looked at our conversation from that day to go back to our actual oh, reactions yeah? and yeah, we talked a bit about the news, but the first thing that you said was, I'm kind of nervous to be outside now as an Asian person. I said, yeah, uh, nervous for our parents, nervous for our friends who are Asian, Asian-run businesses. It hits really close to home. When this was coming out, uh, the very first week it was coming out, only Asian media was really reporting on it, which we noted <laughs> in our conversation. And we were talking about how at the beginning, all of the news articles said that this particular incident was not racially motivated and the shooter himself said that he had a problem with them you know but it was not racially motivated that he had a problem with with who what sorry can you say that last part originally it was a bit like uh, it was a bit vague why exactly this happened right and we were like is it racially motivated is it sexually motivated and turns out it's both but a lot of the media coverage said that it was not racially motivated because he had a sexual motive. But right. I think that's important. Which is like to know. a, it's really important to know. And it's to me just like a really um, removed kind of like distinction to make. Like yeah. when you say, when you try, when you make that kind of distinction, to me, it feels like you're removed from like the reality of how our identities like intersect as Asian women. Like, mm-hmm. oh, it's not actually because you're Asian or they were Asian. Is because they were women. Exactly. <laughs> to me, that's just like, how can you write that as a journalist and like feel like that's a legitimate uh, understanding of like what happened? No matter, like really no matter what the shooter said. I mean, if even though he's like, oh, it's not racially motivated, like he targeted these Asian women. So it was clearly both based on race and his sex addiction, which he later admitted. Exactly. Like, I think the media really... Or I guess, you know, a lot of discussions in general around that time were treating women as the problem. And, and then it came out, okay, he has this addiction. It it's still, it still kind of revolved around the idea that women were the problem and that, mm, yeah, I don't know, it's, it just really, it, like you said, it speaks a lot to how people don't understand the ways in which Asian women have specifically been fetishized and, like you said, the intersection of all of their oppressions and stuff. Yeah, and I remember one, I mean, like, I think a lot of us remember when, like, one of the police sheriffs or something um, said that the murderer was just having a really bad day when Mm -hmm. he went out and shot all of these people. And, like, obviously there was huge backlash to that, understandably, because that is just an absolute, like, absolutely awful thing to say or to believe um, and I think that that guy, like that police officer was also like, he had like racist stuff on his social media about Asians too. So it was just all in all a very, like not the right spokesperson for right. uh, any of these issues. But I think the idea of it like being a bad day for him or like the idea of, oh, it's not racist because he has a sex addiction, like he's struggling, et cetera like speaks to the fact that like there were so many excuses being made for him and I don't want to say that like you know mental health is not important obviously like we know it's important we've talked about it on this podcast and in general we know it's important Um, but I don't think that you can 
separate that completely from I think that the mental health piece and the sex addiction piece needs to be addressed, but it also does not mean that like the violence, it doesn't excuse the violence and it doesn't mean that the violence is not uh, still based on like the race or the gender of the victims. Like that's still a thing and that still needs to also be acknowledged and valued. I don't think it needs to be one or the other. And I think the media really likes to try to, to Mm -hmm. try to try to choose. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And I think it was made out to be that, in some ways, the victims of the shooting were almost blamed for their own murders because of all the excuses that were being made for the perpetrator. And it was like, okay, it's not his fault. He has an addiction. He can't control himself. So he has no choice but to kill these people who were ultimately just temptations to him, right? Like they weren't people, they were temptations. And so we see this happening with a lot of women in color of color historically they're like a temptation they're also a stereotype and i think they also it seemed like they represented like the things that he hated in himself and then also i think like i mean i don't know exactly like how sex addiction and how like a lot of these different specific mental health uh conditions play out but i also think like murder is not like a normal or like a natural reaction to some of these things that people deal with and so i think it's kind of yeah. ridiculous to to excuse like to say that the next step that he took killing someone just makes sense because he had a bad day or because he is struggling like right yeah we need to recognize that's that like many steps yeah exactly we need to recognize that he it's not so black and white as people make it yeah i mm-hmm. i also wanted to share one more thing about one of the victims of the shootings mm-hmm. um who was chinese and i didn't Uh, know this specifically until I was reading some articles again about um, what happened on this one year mark. Um, And she was the only one who died with no next of of kin or close friends in the United States who could claim her body. Mm -hmm. And so people like volunteers in the community came together to organize and attend her funeral. Um, And that just, um, I, I guess it just like really stood out to me because I think it represents the pain of and the hardship of being an immigrant and not having anyone and sometimes like not even family or like not even knowing anyone in this new country and trying to establish yourself and looking for a community for example with like these asian owned businesses and trying to find people like you um, and find work of course it just makes it even more heartbreaking thinking about how she was alone in this foreign country And so I guess kind of related to all of this, um, I want to go back to what you were saying about what we were talking about in our texts a year ago, which is like very interesting, like an archive that you have. Uh, I think my phone like deletes, or I have it set to to delete things that are a year old because I have no storage. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice that you have them still. Um, But I do want to speak to the idea that like over the last couple of years, at least for me, and I think also for you, it has been scarier to go outside alone as an yeah. Asian woman. Definitely. Um, Definitely has share? been worse, I think, during COVID. It has felt weirder, for sure. But mostly, as a young person, I've been more worried about the elderly. Not even just elderly, yeah. but older Asian people. Yeah. And to name that, uh, like, aside from the people who were killed on March 16th in Atlanta, we've seen over the last couple of years a rise in tax on asian elders 
Um, And I don't know like a lot of the specifics, but I've definitely seen a ton of headlines um, and videos like so just horrible videos um, of elderly Asian people that look like our grandparents, honestly, like our grandparents age when they were living in the US, like 60s, 70s, 80s, being attacked on the streets and being bloodied and being killed at times and just being hurt with all different sorts in all different sorts of ways that I think has made it. Well, I guess one example to share that's um, in how that's made it like harder for me to trust that our parents are going to be safe is that when my sister and I and my uh, took my dad downtown um, in Portland to a Blazers game and that was like over winter break, right? Yeah, it was over winter break uh, when we were visiting home. We took like the public transit downtown and then when we got off the max or actually I guess we were just looking outside too and I was just thinking about how at night after dark I would not want my dad to be walking alone and I mentioned that to Hana and Hana was like well why would he be walking alone I was like well yeah I know he's not gonna be walking alone but like I would just really not want him to yeah and then when we got off the max um Hana and I typically like in normal situations, like we sometimes walk faster than our dad, like he takes his time, he's, he's just kind of moseying along, which is usually fine. Um, and Han and I are like running forward sometimes and like laughing and jumping around. Um, but that night, I remember very clearly that I wanted to stay next to him. And I wanted to make sure that we were there with him. And we were I was like, really on mm-hmm. high alert. And like the area we were in is not particularly unsafe for any particular reason. It's just down a downtown like city. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like there were a lot of people that were kind of coming together for the game. And so I just really wanted to make sure that like our dad was okay. Yeah. That's uh, the thing it, though. Like very different. Right. That's the thing though. Even though it's not an area like the hate crimes we've seen against elderly Asians and Asian Americans in general happen in crowds of people there's tons of people Mm -hmm. around it's safe areas they're still happening and i recently saw this instagram account it's by an illustrator and his at is jds chang and he illustrates attacks on asian americans and a lot of them are elderly people and you can see you know some of the he writes a story about what had happened and there's so many right there's so many of these yeah, and it, it sucks because we have to be on higher alert. And then also, I remember Hana and I had a conversation. Oh, this is going to be so horrible to share. But, like, there was a story where, um, like, some Asian people were attacked in their homes. Um, oh, yeah. And I'm not going to share all the details, actually, because there's no need. But I, I just remember Hana and I having a conversation about, like, how much we were, how much more we worried now about our parents, like, being out, like, outside of the suburbs, just... Yeah you know like if especially being outside of the suburbs being a little bit further away from i don't know hospitals and things like that different resources um and just worrying and you know wanting to make sure that they have security cameras and wanting to make sure that they have like ways to protect themselves and like whatever um but just having to like have a heightened awareness of that and conscious conversations about it because we've seen so many people oh, that like yeah. look like our parents look like our grandparents be attacked mm-hmm. so uh, like ruthlessly on the street in broad daylight on the subway like in i don't know the middle of new york or whatever um it's like it's crazy to me yeah it's very very real it's not just like you know it's a very real fear and i'm actually looking again at our conversation and the day after the march 16th incident 
uh, we were talking about it in our family group chat and you oh, say yeah. you go and say like these attacks are becoming more and more common please be vigilant uh, don't hang out by yourself you know and our dad goes this is horrible we have to be very careful to protect ourselves and our mom says now I feel really scared we're, we were just talking about like watch for people walk fast if you can carry self-defense don't be by yourself and noted that the biggest target so far at that time was older Asian women in their 60s that's gradually God. spread to older women older Asian Americans in general you know just seeing these texts like try to wear more stable shoes rather than work shoes or heels because you know if you're gonna go out you have to be like ready like ready to move that's that sucks that's and horrible. also like that shouldn't be on them like that shouldn't they should not no. have to worry about what kind of shoes they're wearing exactly. like that's just uh and then also i remember i think multiple conversations where our mom like we were trying to plan a vacation or something with our mom yes to, i'm looking like, at that now yeah like, we're planning a trip to a national park was it joshua tree oh yeah 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 and so wherever we were planning I think our mom or our dad would ask, like, do you think it's safe for a group of us, like, with Asian faces? Like, that's usually, I think, how they would say it. Yeah. Like, with Asian faces walking around. And, like, that, that is horrible. Like, just saying that right now, like, with Asian faces. It's our faces that are, like, creating the threat or, like, exactly. the hate or, like, the fear in people. I think also to go back to another point um, that we were starting to talk about i think i wanted to ask more about the over sexualization of asian women so you mentioned that um in some of the coverage of the march 16th shootings you know there was an emphasis on his the shooter's sex addiction there was i think also i remember seeing like some stereotyping of asian owned spas and massage parlors mm. as um, having sex work and prostitution uh which you know i just want to say no matter if they were or were not engaged in sex work at those uh, businesses or no matter if the victims were or were not engaged in sex work at all, it doesn't matter. Like that does, that should not be a reason uh, that someone dies. And also there's already so much stigma and so much sexual violence and general violence towards sex workers. And so that's just another piece of like this intersectional identity that makes Asian women vulnerable are these stereotypes. Yeah, And so I just wanted to ask you, Hana, um, what are your experiences with the over-sexualization of Asian women? Like, how has it shown up in your life, if at all? Do you want to go first? And then maybe I'll think of something. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think my initial reaction when thinking about this is a lot of microaggressions in my life in particular about, like, oh, Asian fetish or, like, that guy has yellow fever and like that's that's okay like that's normal it's essentially normalized for people to like uh, for men to have yellow fever <laughs> which yeah. is like so gross now that i'm saying it yeah. um but definitely in college and in law school both like i've had tons of people be like oh yeah that guy just loves asian women like that's just his thing and it's like there's no nuance into like why that's actually potentially problematic and i think you can have whatever preferences you want for like whoever you're dating and like whoever you're attracted to, but like making us into this, like, first of all, a disease, like yellow fever, <laughs> like we're, we're a disease, which is not okay. And then also, uh, you know, just making us into this like sexual fetish, 
mm-hmm. which is just I, I've heard that so many times and so it's shown up in my life in that way yeah and then um, of course there's stereotypes with Asian women we're hypersexualized in America and we're supposed to be more quiet more submissive more like you know look a certain way and they have that idea of us which is obviously very problematic because none of us are like that and (laughs) and that's how we're supposed to be right and that's what they're thinking when they say i love asian women are like i only date asian women and yeah that's a good point because like i think yeah you're right in that like when they say oh i love asian women i have an asian fetish which is not something to be proud about okay um like they have this like weird idealized version of like this submissive quiet like woman who will just do whatever you want her to do and like not fight against you um and like you know yeah yeah and and i think that's just a projection of probably historically oppressive and racist fantasies that people have onto Mm -hmm. asian women bodies and i don't think that's i mean i think you can you can talk a little bit about where that came from maybe yeah, so actually, that's what I was going to say is that's a really good segue because um, I wanted to share a little bit, a very, very little bit, because I'm not a historian, um, about how the violence that we've seen in the last two years is just a continuation of a very, very long history of violence against Asian communities. Um, and we see a lot of these similar themes show up in history about the hypersexualization of Asian women um, and just of Asians in general. Um, and so I, I guess just before we leave the the um, the March 16th discussion, I just want to acknowledge that we aren't we're like we are going into one year since the shootings, but we aren't really going into this week or this day uh, at the one year mark having any sort of like separation from this violence. Mm-hmm. I think it would be different if like it was a standalone incident on March 16th. And obviously it would still be just as horrible, but we've gotten as the Asian American community in the U S we've gotten no space from it. And we've gotten really, it's been very hard to take the time to grieve that particular incident because of how many other incidents Mm -hmm. there have been and uh, other killings of Asians, but also specifically Asian women. There've been a couple recent headlines of very brutal murders of Asian women in New York. Um, And every time that that happens, you know, I I re grieve and I just feel like it's a wound that continues to open and continues to create deeper fear in us. And so I think it's important that as we remember the victims of March 16th and of all of the different um, incidents of violence that have happened, that we keep in mind, you know, the context for long history of racist violence. With that, I want to go and share, I want to share a little bit of, uh, or I guess just a few kind of landmark events in the history of anti-Asian violence and racism in the U.S. Before I do that, I would be remiss if I didn't highlight an event that my husband has written a lot about and has researched a lot about. It did not happen in the United States. Um, It is from 1603. And so I just feel like I wanted to highlight it because it happened so long ago, but it still represents these same themes of anti-Asian violence and hypersexualization. And also it represents like, well, like as Asians then came to the, to the Americas, it represents like how the diaspora brought these, uh, or still represents these similar themes. And so in 1603, uh, there was anti-Asian violence in Spanish Manila uh, in the Philippines, 
that ended in the in the deaths of 20,000 Chinese. Um, And you'll have to hit up my husband to get like the details. And if I get anything wrong here, I'm really sorry, Diego. But (laughs) um, I was also blown away by the number. Like when I was looking at his article that he wrote about this, I like texted him like, wait, 20,000 Chinese? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, there are, it, you, it's hard to know from 1603, like how accurate that number is, but that's the estimate. Um, and at the time, that violence was also based on similar stereotypes of hypersexualization of the Chinese um, in Manila, sexual deviance. Um, and it just speaks to how like outside of the U.S. as well. And throughout history, there have been these same motivators. Mm. Uh, So then if we come to the U.S. and we look at uh, some laws that were passed in the 1800s, I think a lot of people know about the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was in 1882. But actually on that note, I did an event, I think last year or two years ago, where I asked people to identify like a key... Uh, Asian American related law that was passed in 1882 and like I think one person out of the big group of like 100 people could uh, name the Chinese Exclusion Act so I actually don't think it's as common as I think it is because I just know about it but um, I feel like our educational system doesn't always teach it but anyway in 1882 the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed and that prohibited uh, immigration of all Chinese laborers And it's crazy because it was the first and it's actually still now to this day, the only law that was implemented to uh, stop everyone of a certain ethnic or national group from immigrating. And it was geared specifically towards Chinese. But besides the Chinese Exclusion Act, actually, there was an act that was passed seven years prior that I only learned about very, very recently. It's called the Page Act. Mm -hmm. And it actually effectively prohibited entry of Chinese women. So seven years before the Chinese Exclusion Act that stopped all Chinese laborers from coming, there was this act that was passed that stopped Chinese women. The Republican um, congressman who introduced it said that it was the goal was to end the danger of cheap Chinese labor and immoral Chinese women. And it's, I think that this came up as I was researching stuff around, uh, you know, the anti-Asian violence that was happening and the March 16th shootings, but it just, it's so spot on. Like it's incredibly spot on to everything that we're talking about. And it's so sad. It's like very, I'm sad that I didn't learn about it sooner, but it's also just sad to know that that's in our history as well. Not necessarily surprising. I mean, it's Um, just another way that they wanted to exclude the Chinese population, but in essentially revolved around the idea that Chinese women were prostitutes and that they were temptations for white people, essentially white men. So it's crazy. Yeah. And it's crazy because, um, I mean, obviously it stopped people from coming, but it also created like this policing of women and of immigrants around sexuality, um, which are themes that we continue to see. And it's just like, uh, I don't know. It's not surprising, like I said, but it is, we have history of racializing Asian women as well. Yeah, exactly. In during World War II, we of course see Japanese internment and uh, the incarceration of Japanese Americans throughout the country. I think I remember Hana, you telling me that you didn't learn about this until like pretty late. Yeah. So what happened was I was a senior in high school, and the first time I heard about the Japanese internment camps was from you and Diego. Yeah. 
because we went to like an event that talked about it and no one in my classes even knew what it was and That's right. it kind of just showed like oh so our schools just selectively educate and and this was part of history that they i guess wanted to forget or not tell students about so yeah and it's senior in high school like that you were just 18 17 yeah, 18 18 and then you were only then learning about Japanese internment, which in my mind, I mean, I think I, I think I learned about it in high school, but I can't remember. Um, but at least after college and stuff, it became, it's like a very obvious example to me of mm-hmm. um, anti-Asian racism. Yeah, it was, I remember like we went to this event and then afterwards you were like, oh, like that was really interesting. Like I, I didn't know that they, you know, had yeah. put all these people in, in camps and I was like, <laughs> wow, yeah, crazy. Yeah. Crazy. But yeah, that's I wanted to highlight this is all these are obviously like only a few selections of moments in history, but I just wanted to highlight that what we're seeing in the last couple of years is not something new. It is something that we've seen themes of and violence, violent acts of um, throughout history, even before the history of our country, you know, around the world. And then today in the world we also or in the u.s we also see other kinds of violence besides like uh individual on individual violence and like attacks we also have a lot we still have a lot of state violence against uh asian communities we have for example um, i mean like i work in immigrant justice policy so a lot of my work is around like the detention and deportation of Asian refugees and Asian communities and then also non-Asian communities, of course. But I just want to highlight that like our government and our state is still targeting and arresting and detaining and deporting people. Like that's also a a way that Asians are stereotyped, immigrants are stereotyped and criminalized. um, And Mm -hmm. like we can't ignore that violence as well. Mm -hmm. So I think just to say like that and then other ways that like Asians and immigrants are systematically excluded from like voting and from um, other state services and things like that. All of these kinds of stereotypes and barriers to entry and uh, criminalization, it's all still very real. And we have to see it, I guess, as like a full picture of the violence that's happening towards uh, against our communities and think about it like all together because they're all very connected. Yeah, this is a good point. Yeah. And I think the the place that it came became the most clear or the time it became the most clear, like how the state's violence and the state's rhetoric against Asian communities uh, catalyzes violence and creates violence was during the Trump administration. And so I think that's why, like, during the last couple of years and during the Trump administration, we saw, like, a very clear rise and people were talking more about it. Um, but just because of, like, things that Trump and his uh, his people were saying about, like, the China virus and Kung flu and, like, blaming COVID on Chinese Americans, um, which then became, like, like a call <laughs> for people mm-hmm. to hate on and, like, act out towards Asians, which... Yeah, we became the scapegoat, the scapegoat for violence. They're allowed to do whatever they want because they have a reason now. They have a reason to to commit these acts. And that, I think, like you said, is the main reason why we've seen so much violence against Asian elderly. I also I, I think maybe I've already said this enough, but it just makes me so incredibly sad, like extra sad when it's freaking grandparents. Like It just feels like deep in my heart and my like, I don't know, it makes me so angry, too. It 
Yeah, I, I just, like, remember seeing when these first started, when these attacks first started being reported, I was just like, how could anyone ever have so much hatred in their heart for another human? Oh, it's really sad. Yeah. And then, like, I, I think it's good that with the rise of technology, like, we can see videos and we can see, like, like people can um, record, yeah. like, things that happen like this. Mm-hmm. in some instances it's very good and like helpful but it's also just like so can be so triggering and so traumatizing honestly to see these kinds of videos passed around social media constantly yeah like i remember at one point there was just like a constant flow and i like just couldn't i know i just couldn't i like didn't watch a lot of them and i felt bad that i wasn't staying aware of like what was happening but i would read the headlines and i just i couldn't like the visual was too much what do you think about like bystander intervention <laughs> like this is uh mm. i guess it's just i'm just thinking about that because you're saying like oh well if we saw that happening like if it was our grandma like what it kind of made me think of like what we would do yeah. in the moment and i think there have been some like bystander intervention trainings and things like that uh, which i think the goal more so than like intervening in the moment is like trying to help diffuse a situation or like if you see something about to happen like trying to right. protect the person and get them away from the space yeah i um, think both are are important but i think it's worse to be that person who's experiencing some kind of hate crime or hate incident and no one is there for you no one is standing with you like if no one's intervening when you're clearly being targeted because of your race or your gender with ethnicity whatever i think that's worse Obviously, safety first, right? And try to stay calm. But I think that they would, at least if it was me, I would be very grateful that someone spoke up for me or stepped between me and an aggressor. Yeah. Hopefully, the result is never, like, more violence. I think the goal is always to try to prevent any further violence or, like, limit the violence. And like Hannah said, I think in the moment especially, like, you have to look out for your safety as well and, like, the safety of your family and whoever you're with maybe. But I also think that, like, particularly when it comes to elderly and otherwise vulnerable people or just, like, yeah, I mean, elderly and vulnerable people especially, like, we as people who are able should consider how much we can, like, step up and, like, put ourselves out there for them because – I mean, I don't know. It's very hard. I think I also have a little bit of a savior complex. So I'm like, I you got to get there. You got to put your body on the line. You got to be, you know, get in between them. Yeah. But I know it's also like in the moment, it's very, very, it's like a judgment call. And it's like right. a split second reaction sometimes. And, um, but I, I think maybe it doesn't necessarily have to be about like putting your physical body there or like being physically there uh, in between them. But mm-hmm. you can like be next to the person and, yeah. you know, distract them and like, distract or you know just try to get them to a safer place like some of those bystander intervention things uh, i think can be helpful yeah agreed oh it's so hard to say i think if it's like violent if it's a violent situation or you're clearly in danger you should just try to get help call 911 i don't know report it but generally it's better to do something than and nothing yeah so i guess like with that we can start talking um about like how how we think we can move forward together as as a community mm-hmm. what we've learned from the last couple of years i guess and where we think that we as individuals and then the system should go forward yeah um, and so i guess to start on that one thing that i've learned in the last couple of years is that our communities 
care for each other and our community care for each other can really, really make a difference. And so going all the way back to what I was talking about in the beginning about uh, the rapid response that Advancing Justice and other organizations in Atlanta were doing um, after the March 16th shootings, I think more and more, like as I was processing what had happened and helping the family um, who lost their their mother, their grandmother, working very closely with like organizers and advocates and even attorneys too. Like the more I processed the sad, overwhelming part, the more I realized like it's really beautiful and I'm really grateful to be a part of a community that comes together so quickly to provide all these resources. And it really showed me that like we do have these resources. And obviously like there are still systemic barriers for people to get like legal help. Like there's in in terms of legal help, like there are other challenges to getting like relief or getting, uh, you know, like filing a case or like, you know, getting whatever they need. But at least there's someone there ready to support them through the process. And I think that is really amazing. And that was amazing to see. Like there were tons of law firms offering their pro bono support, like offering to represent them in front of the media. And like there was, oh God. And also I was like so pissed off at the media after <laughs> March 16th because they kept bombarding the family that I was working with. And like I was getting mm. all of their emails. Right. And I was getting calls and they even like, somehow got our mom's number and called our mom and so like when that happened I was I just snapped I was just like like f the media like get off of my get out of my face like get out of this family's face like they're just trying to grieve they need a safe space right now like do not come at us so hard like fuck that like that is such trash like I can't it is trash it's truly trash and so I was really pissed about that, <laughs> but I was really happy to see that there were like attorneys and other advocates who were ready to like serve as like the filter for that. Because in the end, what really, really mattered was the families, what they needed and how we could get that to them in the most, like most easy and safe way possible. I don't know. It just showed me that like in the longer, in my longer term vision of like what freedom and liberation for our communities looks like. It's like a lot of this sharing of resources, sharing of knowledge and sharing of support and then keeping each other accountable and keeping each other safe. Do you have thoughts on like moving forward? What kinds of things we can do to either like prevent, you know, acts of Asian, Mm -hmm. anti-Asian violence or, you know, change our system or have solidarity with communities? I think as a society, as long as we keep ignoring the fact that racism plays a role in hypersexualization and rape culture and fetishization of Asian women, people are going to keep targeting Asian American women and just women of color in general. It's important to recognize that this type of violence, it's gendered and affects all women, even if it doesn't affect them all in the same way. So I think we need to insist on calling these crimes for what they are, not making excuses. They're sexist and racist. And only then when we recognize these crimes are what they are and not try to twist them and you know whatever the media is trying to do like we're we're going to keep leaving minorities unprotected and so that's the biggest takeaway i had from this whole incident also like yeah these incidents are all high profile incidents you know there are big mass murders or mass shootings but like we mentioned before Asian Americans are dealing with things every day. They're dealing with 
microaggressions, transgressions, and hate incidents that can even just be, you know, like verbal harassment. A majority of these small incidents are being reported as verbal harassment, which is equally not as okay, right? That's just contributing to our growing fear. And it's going to sound so cliche, but I do think it's important that we continue like speaking out when those kinds of things happen, like don't let them just pass when people make rude comments um, or like at least when it's safe, obviously, like if it's not safe, you know, just get out of the situation. But when it's safe to speak out about them. You know, it's about creating awareness about how about the harms that like microaggressions and uh, verbal harassment and things like that create. And it's also, I think, about like fighting against those stereotypes of Asian women. Like mm. whenever I hear something that's like, uh, well, I don't tolerate anything about yellow fever or Asian fetish anymore. Mm. And then also when people are like, well, but Asians are submissive and Asians are this and that. And like Asians will never fight back or speak up. I'm like, okay, you want to see? Like, <laughs> you want to see me speak up? <laughs> um, but also like just showing that like our community is so much more diverse than these horrible stereotypes and like this annoying sexualization like we are powerful asian women we are not your china doll like we are not mm. your stereotype we are not your fetish just making sure that mm. we continue to fight against those kinds of narratives wherever we can and like in whatever space we can because agreed. it's a big ask and we all need to be doing it wherever we are yeah agreed agreed i think that's really important because um a lot of the time it's really hard to do that you know as a young person i've struggled with that like i just let people slide when they say stuff like that and yeah. only in recent years, you know, like being more educated and thinking more about like, is this really okay with me? Like for my friends to say this to me, like, I think that's important to have the courage and, you know, to speak out during this time where it's so. And I think like sometimes it's the hardest to speak up when it's our friends and our family, but we need to push ourselves to do that because that's also the space that will probably make the most impact. Like if some random right. person says something to me and I try to like, argue back like how much of an impact is that going to make but if I'm ready to call my friends out or like sit down with my parents um, and like talk about how racism can play out in the things that they're saying and how it ties to like bigger issues like over time at least that could make a difference I also found a statistic actually that was published this month from the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum and it found that 74% yeah NAPOP found that 74% of Asian American and Pacific Islander women reported experiencing racism or discrimination over the last year, and 53% said that the perpetrator was a stranger or someone they didn't know. And so oh on goodness. that point, yeah, it's, it's very staggering numbers, but on that point, I think it's important to support the Asian American community around you and check in with them. You can bring up what's going on with your Asian American friends or family and be like, are you doing okay? Like, yeah, I'm here with agree. you. I see what's happening. You're not alone. You know, you don't, I don't want you to feel afraid. I think actually some of my friends were mentioning that like during all of this, they created like personal safety networks. So like they mm -hmm. would have, they would communicate with other, other Asians, but also other people of color and whoever's close to them. And like, have a tree kind of like of communication so if they were like feeling unsafe or they like i guess for different situations where they felt unsafe they would have a particular person to call or like if they were going to they, like if they were making plans to go somewhere or do something they would like specifically coordinate to walk home together or like mm -hmm. leave 
the office together at the same time and like stuff like that. And obviously it sucks that we have to do that, but it can help us connect with our communities and then also just create these like personal safety protections and make sure that we feel like we're in it together. Stuff like that. Yeah, you should do that also really with your friends. Like, leave leave the library together. Really good idea. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, like don't walk alone. How are we gonna come to recognize and get society to recognize that a lot of the issues revolving Asian American attacks are obviously racist, but also sexist? And how can we nuance race intersecting with sexism? And how are we gonna get America to get that? There's a lot of layers of discrimination, and that's part of the reason why I think it's important for us on this podcast to talk about the history of Asian American you know, oppression, understanding that there is history is really important. I think that's one of the first steps. Even just like reading books by Asian American authors. Yeah, so I think that's just one way we can combat ignorance is by educating ourselves. Yeah, educate ourselves. And then also in terms of what we were talking about earlier, like how the media wants to pick and choose and doesn't want to see our identities intersectionally. And also the criminal justice system does that. Um, But like, or if you're part of an organization or if you are even if you're an individual who wants who likes to write mm-hmm. <laughs> one suggestion is like organizations should put out their own statements uh opposing what the media is doing because mainstream media will do whatever it wants but then if we see all these different perspectives and um statements from organizations in the community that's affected saying like no like okay yes the sheriff's office is saying this and the media saying this, but we know that like this was a racially driven or gender driven act of violence. You know, we stand with our communities. We're here. Like that's another way that like we can show that our communities care for each other and that we're fighting against this narrative that whoever else out there wants to create. Um, and then I said, as an individual who likes to write, you can <laughs> if you're not part of an organization, I was just trying to think of a way that you could also get involved in that same mm-hmm. way. And you could write an op-ed. And you can get that yeah. placed somewhere. Like there's always, you can just even put it on social media for your friends, you know, like there are ways to share your opinion. And um, I was going to add that one thing I wanted to name in this whole conversation is something that uh, has come up during the last couple of years where we, we have seen attacks on Asian Americans in the news. And sometimes the assailants are black Americans. Um, and I just want to say first that there's no evidence that black Americans are, you know, largely or more so responsible for any of this, for like the rise in attacks or anything like that. But I do think that like a lot of the attacks that have gained media attention and have gotten social, social media attention as well, um, are attacks by black people. And I want to name this because I think it has created more tension between the black community and the Asian community Mm -hmm. at a time when we need to be coming together most. It's creating a lot of tension and division and hate. Like, like, like literally our parents and other community members that I've worked with in Atlanta have said things to me that are like, well, you know, like there's a lot of black people like hurting our communities. Like, and then it, they have, they buy into other narratives about like the criminalization of black people and black criminality just in general. Mm-hmm. And I just, I need to say that because I just, it's just like very tough and it's very sad because like I can talk my mouth off, my head off or whatever, talk my mouth off. I don't know this expression. <laughs> I can talk my head off about like 
out, you know, this is not actually representative of what's happening. You know, these are just what the media shows you. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's like a very long embedded history of anti-blackness in Asian communities that yeah. um, also needs to be addressed. Um, and so I think part of like moving forward from all of this is continuing to remember that our communities of color, black, Asian, Latino, uh, like all of our communities of color need to, oh, and native, of course, indigenous peoples, we all need to come together in solidarity against this racist violence because all of it is a is a result of white supremacy and whiteness trying to pit us against each other. Um, and at this moment in time, especially, but also just all the time, we need to be in solidarity together. Yeah, against white people. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but yeah, like we are all suffering from different brands of racism. And of course, like there are very, very different and black Americans have a very long history in the US of uh, slavery and of other kinds of oppression and like mm-hmm. so many um, anti-civil rights and anti-human rights um, or I guess civil rights and human rights violations against black people. And they're very different in certain ways from like what Asians have experienced and what native people have experienced, but like it's all oppression and it's all trauma and we all need to be there to support each other in what we're experiencing. And we cannot let, oh my God, I'm going to sound like a propaganda machine. (laughs) You calm down. We cannot let the white majority (laughs) continue to, you know, just, I, I think we can't let them create these false narratives that make us fight, fight, internally within communities of color because we need to be together to to make any sort of change for all of us agreed agreed i think it's that's a really really good point and um like standing in solidarity both as minority groups is so important and i really am happy to see that like there's sort of a generational gap now between our parents or older you know first gen asian immigrants and younger Asian Americans who were born in the U.S. Yeah. who go out to protests to support Black Lives Matter and things like that. And hopefully yeah. that really changes the way that anti-Black sentiment has been in the, in the past. Yeah, and you bring up Black Lives Matter. It reminds me of like how during the Black Lives Matter protests when there was like property damage, which was often by white protesters, by the way. Yeah. Um, but when there was like damage to anti or sorry damage to asian owned businesses like i still saw narratives that um from business owners that were like calling for an end to the protests calling for an end because of the property damage that was happening um like anti-black statements being put out which really reminded me i think of um, my limited understanding of the la riots that were uh, a result of like tensions between the black and korean communities in los angeles Um, and also revolved around a lot of damage to Korean businesses and led to other violence. I guess I just want to say that because I think there are still very similar themes that are happening there, like Mm -hmm. still in certain ways fighting with each other. Um, But I do think that what you're saying is true. Like there's definitely a generational difference and we are moving more and more towards more consistent solidarity, which is really wonderful. Agreed. So one more thing that I wanted to talk about is that in the last couple of years, especially although after March 16th, 
um, that a lot of people have been pushing to increase hate crime prosecution and hate crime legislation to strengthen the laws around what counts as a hate crime, you know, what the sentence is, things like that. Um, and that ties directly into the conversation about March 16th because there was a lot of, there was a big push to prosecute those murders as hate crimes. I just wanted to address this because I think it's very complicated as someone who does not necessarily think that the criminal legal system is the answer to all of our problems or that it is the answer to, or it's the answer to finding justice. Because I think in the aftermath, especially of something so horrible, where people close to you have died, like there's always a call for justice. There's a call for, you know, some sort of redemption. And right now with the system that we have, that is incarceration by the criminal system, or that is, you know, some sort of prosecution. And we're, there's a lot of narratives about, or there's a lot of calls for stronger prosecution, harsher sentences, harsher penalties, things like that. And I personally don't think that long-term, like the criminal system is going to be our answer to like liberation because we've seen that it has really just led to the mass incarceration of communities of color and like the over-criminalization of communities of color. And so that's why. But I also want to acknowledge that like, you know, as I'm working with families or working with communities who are directly impacted, I do think that there needs to be some space to allow for like that understanding of justice that exists right now. So it's hard. <laughs> I really struggle because I don't, I don't love like calling for, you know, increased prison sentences and like just throwing people in jail and like not addressing like root causes of things and not providing like some sort of more community-based like rehabilitation or like whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I can't turn to a family whose grandmother has died and say like, yeah. Well, you know, this is not like the long-term vision, so we should we can't support this because like that's not that's not true. I think that's not true because what we have right now is what we have to work with too. Right. But I also think it's hard when it comes to like strengthening hate crimes legislation because I don't know. It just it's also just another way to expand the carceral system and and criminalize more people. Right. And just having more people behind bars is not really going to fix our our society. Like it doesn't, you know, when someone commits a hate crime, putting them in jail is not going to necessarily stop other people from being racist or committing right. hate crimes what would you say but, oh yeah no. no i was gonna say because you were saying earlier like it's important for us within like talking about hate crimes to name that things are racist the name that things are gender um driven um and things like that and i agree with that so i think there needs to be some sort of like way to address that and you know some some way to give people a sense of justice but i guess i just personally don't know what that can look like in the long term at least mm. well i'm really glad yeah. we had this discussion and talked a little bit about history what we can do going forward to deal with um asian anti-asian violence and sexualization yeah. of asian women yeah me too i think it's a conversation that we should continue to have even either on the podcast or um elsewhere and then i also just want to say that as we continue to hear, I mean, hopefully not, but if we continue to hear news of violence and racism, that it's also okay to just sit in your grieving and sit in your sadness because it is hard. Um, and then just remember that like 
we are a community and we are all in it together and we will continue to to protect each other as much as we can thanks for sticking with us this week Uh, i know this episode was a bit more serious than usual and we'll be back in two weeks with a new topic yeah follow us on instagram you know leave us a comment let us know what you think we'd love to hear any and all feedback and thoughts thank you bye